Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to another episode of Lost in Science for another week. Uh, your second episode for 2018, indeed. My name is Claire, and this week we have some great stories for you. Obviously, uh, there are always great stories on Lost in Science. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about animals doing human impressions. Not humans doing animal impressions, because I know everybody has their favourite uh, animal impression that they like to do. So, so are we just talking like, you know, parrots who can talk or well, cats you... wearing clothes? <laughs> Chimps who are private detectives? <laughs> yep. I bet you if an animal could do a, um, could do like a mime or something like that. Anyway, um, you would think it was just parrots, but no, not just parrots. We're talking... Some of the biggest animals in the world, cetaceans, uh, cetaceans. specifically orcas, killer whales, um, who have just been recorded and published doing impressions of humans and what that means for their whole social construct. It's pretty awesome. Um, Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, I'm talking about something that happened a really long time ago. Um, I'm talking about the evolution of flowering plants. And that's always been a somewhat controversial topic amongst paleobiologists. How did flowering plants evolve if there was no insects around to pollinate them? And we seem like we might have an answer to that um, that was just recently dug up in Germany by someone from Boston. So I'll go into more detail explaining what exactly that means and what does it mean for the relationship between plants and flying insects. And Chris? Well, I have a question for you, Claire. Is there ice on Mars? Is there life on Mars? No, I, I think I'm talking about oh, ice. It's, sorry, not, no, it's not as exciting in the story. But no, I am talking about a discovery that was recently announced of Big underground deposits of ice on Mars discovered by the Martian Reconnaissance Orbiter, which, you know, they're trying to get us excited about. But I did a kind of a double take when I heard it going, wait a second, didn't they already find water on Mars? And what's, you know, why why is this a big deal? And digging a bit deeper, it turns out that the story is a bit more complicated than we first thought. And I'm going to have a bit of a discussion about what this means for the way that we consume science in the in the public mind and the way we should, yeah... Uh, should I give a disclaimer for our listeners for discussion, uh, read between the lines? Chris Rant? <laughs> We're not going to have a new segment of Chris Rant, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see how worked up I get. I'm looking forward to it. On with the show. So when you think about animals that can imitate humans, uh, what animals do you think about? 
parrots. Yeah. Maybe maybe uh, chimpanzees. Yeah, yeah, monkeys wearing or pants. Or your uh, greater apes. Um, I guess some um, probably probably lyrebirds can make some sort of human-like noises as well. That's true. I mean, if they can make the sound of a chainsaw or, or a, a camera clicking, yeah, surely or a they no- can. Nokia phone ringtone. Or a Nokia <laughs> phone ringtone. How about three dogs standing on each other wearing a trench coat? <laughs> <laughs> I think they would still have a hard time sounding like a human. Yes, they would. Yeah. Um, well, how about orcas? You're a killer whale. Because new research this week has um, given us audio proof that these very clever cetaceans can imitate human voices. Um, Would you like to hear a little? Yeah. Yeah, would we ever? Hello? (laughs) Hello? Wow. That sounded very orca-like. Not, not entirely sure it sounded like human speech. But... You don't think that they would get away with it at customs? Yeah, possibly if you, not. If, if, if you put a, uh, put, a, put a hat and a coat over an orca? <laughs> yeah. um, well, what you heard there, um, one of them was a human, one of them was an orca. Um, just so you know, they weren't both orcas. Oh, so the, the one... I'm guessing the one you could understand was the human. The one that you could understand was the was the human. Okay. The one that sounded like farts was the orca. Okay. Yep. Uh, the voice of the orca was a 14-year-old orca named Wiki, mm-hmm. who lives at a marine aquarium in France. Um, and this is the first time we have a recording of an orca imitating human speech. Um, so, I mean, it's only up from here in terms of quality. But... But um, it was just published as part of a paper in the Royal Proceedings in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Biology. Um, now I have to say I don't agree with keeping orcas in aquariums. Um, I've seen Blackfish. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It is. Yeah, I have seen that yeah. documentary. Yeah. <clears throat> it. Yeah. I mean, keeping them in aquariums sent, does send them crazy. It's a pretty cruel practice. Um, and one of the reasons that it sends them crazy is orcas are remarkably intelligent ocean mammals, and they have really highly developed social structures. So, in fact, um, orcas or killer whales are so socially advanced that researchers have documented that different pods of orcas have different vocal dialects. So it's like um, they have specific languages that they only use with one another. Um, And these languages, these dialects that they pick up, um, are often referred to as orca traditions or cultures. So wait, they, they do actually have different languages, different orcas in different places, different languages. Yeah, different right. pods have different languages. Except we have a French whale speaking English. Well... What's up with that? <laughs> that, is, that is a good point. And um, so what they have found or what they are hypo- hypothesizing is that um, orcas can actually learn these languages out innately. Oh, I see. They don't innately um, know them. So it's like who they a lot talk of to. other, yeah, that a lot of uh, like a lot of other animals have. They okay. just like innately know these languages. But these orcas are actually learning them. 
right. from from birth. So that's that's why we can teach the orca how to um, mimic humans. Okay. Yeah. So um, a cat meowing, I guess, would be an example of of an of an animal intrinsically knowing, you know, a type of communication. Um, but these dialects can be learnt while they're in the wild. Um, anyway, so that's where this human imitation comes in. Um, because if an orca can imitate and uh, learn how to talk like a human, uh, then the vocalizations and languages, um, yeah, are socially learned. They're not. They're not um, through their genetics. Uh, so hopefully, this is just part of the growing amount of evidence that points to orcas being uh, quite complicated and in their social um, and communicative development and very advanced species that that really need to be in the wild. Um, And they are certainly very capable of fundamentally changing the way that they communicate depending on their social situation, i.e. they can speak, they can imitate humans to a certain degree. Um, Or, I mean, orcas have been uh, known to imitate other animals as well. So like like dolphins. Oh, well, there's a certain resemblance. Yeah, I mean, to your human ear there is. But maybe to an orca ear, it is more different. Okay, fair point. <laughs> but I mean, the the interesting thing I think is if they can they can pick up on different um, different audio waves and imitate things. They're actually like you know they're the Doctor Doolittle of the animal world. Almost no. No. Well, can they talk to other animals? Well, they can imitate them. Yeah, so they're okay. the they're the dodgy Doctor Doolittle of the animal okay. world. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. So this orca who's speaking and saying things like "hello" and "one, two, three, There isn't any evidence to say that it understands what it's saying. It's just imitating, mm. um, the 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 audio pattern, so to speak. Um. Now, but orcas aren't the only animals that can imitate humans. Um. In fact, they're not even the only whale that can imitate humans. Um, So I'm going to play you a little bit of a beluga whale imitating the sound of a human conversation. Now, it it hasn't actually been taught this human conversation. It just hears it being in an aquarium and then it sort of like pretends to, to... well, it doesn't pretend, it, it, it just imitates what it thinks it hears. So I'm just going to play you a little and tell me what you think. So there you go. That's the um, beluga whale. What did you think of that? I love how it's like herd humans and it's gone. So humans, they just go. Da, 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 da. I know. Basically, it's basically the whale equivalent saying blah, 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 blah. It, it, it is the whale equivalent. Um, and it really reminded me of um, the Swedish chef in the Muppet oh, yes. and going hurdy, gurdy, hurdy, gurdy, hurdy, gurdy. Like that that's actually um, words. Mm. But um, yes, that, that is the beluga equivalent of human conversation. Dur, 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 dur. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I just love hearing these sounds. There are, um, you know, I, I think it's quite humbling to hear animals imitating humans um, and getting away with it a little bit, and and you know, because we we so often imitate animals, we yeah. and we're not very good at it. 
Um, I'll just play you um, one last um, sound of an animal imitating. Um, I mean, it, this is an unintentional imitation, but um, a great one nonetheless. From it's it, it's a goat, um, and um, yeah, just try and pick out what you think this goat is saying. <laughs> Anything? No. It, it it sort of sounds like it's yelling for its mother. Mum! No? Maybe. <laughs> I guess it could be yelling for its mother. I mean, it is a kid. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I love hearing these sounds and it makes you once again realise we are all just chatty animals. Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? I think it was the egg. It was definitely the egg. Yeah, obviously the egg evolved before the chicken. And yeah. whatever proto-chicken first gave birth to something chicken-like was already laying eggs. Bing, next question. <laughs> so, we can probably say the egg, but one question which has truly baffled paleobiologists is, which came first, the flower or the flying insect? Um, not all flowering plants rely on insect pollination. There are numerous wind-pollinated species, as anyone who suffers hay fever can congestedly attest. But many plants do rely on pollination by flying insects. But early flowering plant fossils showing nectaries, the part of the flower that makes the sugary nectar, mm, nectaries predate flying insects by millions of years. So the question is, why did they have nectaries if there was nothing to feed on the nectar? Was there something else that was flying? Well, even Charles Darwin commented that the evolution of flowering plants was an abominable mystery because he couldn't figure out how that could have happened. Um, didn't make sense for plants to produce nectar if they didn't get a benefit out of producing the nectar, because yeah. obviously it takes a lot of energy to make nectar, and that seems to be a bit of a waste. Um, so in 2012, a Boston professor called Paul K. Struther, while visiting Germany, discovered something familiar-looking in some rock samples extracted around various parts of the country in Germany. He saw wings very similar to those of modern-day Lepidoptera, which is the butterflies. Uh, But the samples were from strata, which were about 50 million years older than those insects should have been. Oh, so these were like new fossils then? Yeah, yeah. He He was just examining... Basically, it was detritus that had been in ponds. Yeah. And they figured out anyway that there's... You know, he was just looking for bits and pieces of flowers or whatever he could find in there, and he saw that there's these wings that look like butterfly wings in there. Wow. So they are not supposed to be around at that time. No. And the wings seem to be pretty incontrovertible evidence that an early form of moth or butterfly did exist before flowering plants evolved. But what were they doing? They didn't really understand what they could have been doing. They didn't understand what niche they would have been filling in the ecosystem 
because there was oh, no flowers for them to right. feed on before the flowers evolved. Were they carnivorous butterflies? Um, well, the group of insects in the fossilised debris are a group called the glossata, and it seems that they were gaining some nutrition by sucking up drops of water from a different group of plants, oh. the gymnosperms, which oh. is the conifers. So the gymnosperms evolved before flowering plants, and they were the first true woody plants on Earth, and the tiny insects used their modified mouthparts to slurp up drops of water that formed on pollen grains of the gymnosperms. So they were getting some nutrition from the from water, the which was dissolving the pollen. So, yeah. But that is that's not intentional then, nectary. That is just accidental pollen? Or is it like now we just push the chicken and egg further back? The Well, the, the pollen of gymnosperms are wind pollinated. So oh. there was no benefit oh, necessarily to the, to the gymnosperms getting these, you know, proto butterflies feeding on them. Right. Um, but that's where they were getting their food source from. And that's, that's why they evolved that that proboscis that can actually suck up nectar. And so that's how is, – is that how angiosperms evolved? Well, no, that came from a completely different group of plants. So um, what's an angiosperm? Angiosperm is a flowering plant. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry, Chris. That's all right. I'm a bit slow sometimes. Um, so, yeah, gymnosperms are naked seeds. That's what gymnosperm means. Angiosperm have covered seeds, so they're actually enclosed in a fruit. Wait, so what is the gymnasium? Is that like a naked asium? Yeah, in, in ancient Greece, the gymnasium was a naked place. <laughs> you would strip off and go to the gymnasium. This changes everything. <laughs> yeah, when, when you're doing gymnastics later on, there's only one way to do it. Yeah, I only think they, they run that way at the Olympics, but uh, <laughs> back in the day... Um, so, yeah, so the water had some nutrients leaking out of the plants and dissolved sap as well in the water, and they fed the insects and prepared them for the much later arrival of the true flowering plants, the angiosperms. So while the exact identity of the species Strada discovered is yet to be determined, it's clear that they are ancestors of modern moths and butterflies and that they already existed when flowering plants appeared. Um, so... Working with other European researchers, they've now pieced together information that butterflies arose sometime in the Jurassic era over 200 million years ago. Uh, and hopefully this new evidence can put to rest the abominable mystery of flowering plants. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I don't know if you noticed, but there was an announcement in January this year of a discovery of huge cliffs of ice on the planet Mars, and they're being touted as a possible source of water for human colonization, future human colonization, also possibly even a source of water to support Martian life. Now, this, is, this sounds very exciting, but perhaps like me, you're thinking, Hang on, didn't they already discover liquid water on Mars? Wasn't that a thing? This was a couple of years ago, and I'm sure there was reports of liquid water on Mars at certain times of year. There were those reports, and... Um, I'm pretty sure we covered it then. Yeah, we did yeah. actually cover yeah. it. We actually, it happened back in 2015. We reported, I, think, I think I reported yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah. I found my notes. Um, yeah. <laughs> So what happened there was the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the same spacecraft implicated in this latest discovery, <laughs> um, had spotted these dark patterns in certain craters that appeared to be due to, to running water. 
Um, they called them in the paper, they called them recurring slope linear, which I think at the time we all had a good laugh about. You know, they had a silly name, mm. recurring slope linear. Why don't they just say water, you know, because yeah. that's what they were telling us it was. Um, <laughs> We also had a bit of a laugh because this was announced just before the movie The Martian came out. That's right. In which Matt Damon used a much more complicated and much more dangerous method to obtain liquid water. And it was like, well, there's water just down the road, you know. Um, anyway, so that was all the thing uh, in 2015. Now, it turns out, though, that this, um, this strange name of recurring slope linear, this kind of obscure dodging the, the, the point name was in fact um, appropriate because uh, some members of the same team that announced that finding in 2015 have now announced they continue to investigate and they've now announced that it's probably not water. Um, they observed that these, uh, these recurring slope linear only occur on slopes steeper than 27 degrees and when the slope is less than that they kind of peter out whereas water should still be able to run down a slope that is less than 27 degrees. Um, yeah, so now they believe that they're actually just avalanches of sand and they look like, you know, trickles of water because there is sort of, um, there is darker, coarser grains underneath when there's paler dust on over the top. So that's what they're now saying it is. Now, I'm sure when this was first announced in 2015, you know, we all thought, well, maybe this is just ripples of sand. But we were assured that, no, they had good evidence to say that it was water. And so, yeah, we were all excited because this meant that there was water on Mars. Turns out that that, yeah, like I said, that wasn't the case. And it was the same team that did it. Where now, was the retraction? Well, retraction of At the of bottom sorts. of the newspaper. No, it actually came out in November last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually reported. I found some reports on it, but I didn't, I didn't notice it. Mm. It didn't get anywhere didn't near get kind of the yeah. huge attention that the first one did. Of course. Yeah. So that's the interesting thing. When you have sensational claims like that, it's very hard to pull them back because everyone remembers the big exciting discovery and they don't remember the thing where we say, oh, no, it wasn't really. Um, yeah. So, I mean, liquid water, let's be honest, makes more of a splash. <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying, this, this kind of thing, this is not unique to science. This happens with all kinds of news. I mean, you see it, uh, look, I've noticed a lot, say, with um, when the Australian will have a sensational claim about climate change on their front page, and then that's debunked two days later in a paragraph buried somewhere within the, within the paper. So, of course, everyone just remembers the original outrageous claim. And I'm sure that there are still people today who still believe that they're WMDs in Iraq even though that was, that was widely debunked because that's how it was reported at the time. I mean, it's the same issue with science. Like, it's easy to report on positive findings, but if you don't find anything, no one wants to, like, no journal takes that paper because it doesn't say anything. That's right. That's right. And, but this is also with science, I think, why it's important to remember that discoveries basically are provisional no matter how sensational they are. In fact, the more sensational, the more kind of you need to be a bit kind of careful about just assuming that it's a fact. It takes and, a lot of evidence. This is why scientists famously speak in potentialities and probabilities sure. rather than saying yeah. something's actually for sure really happening right now. Yeah. They say, well, chances are this is probably what's happening most of the time. Yeah. And people sort of go, oh, that's wishy-washy, and then they sort of sex it up for the, for the newspaper, which puts the scientists in trouble because they, they end up having to say, but we didn't say that. But then you get, yeah, there are some examples that I can think of, like the, um, the, the BICEP2 results, um, which was, I don't know if anyone remembers BICEP2, it was the observation supposedly of the signal of gravitational waves and the Big Bang. Um, there was this huge discovery they announced. They actually made a big PR thing about it, and then it turned out not to be the case. 
Um, and I think the scientists there were themselves. You know, they, they were probably in the paper they used that cautious language, but they were really pushing their result mm. um, because they were fairly confident of it. And part of it, I think, is just to, yeah, to, to, to use the hype um, to get more attention to your research. Um, so, look, there is some danger there. But um, certainly when it comes to, like, you know, life on Mars, obviously we're all going to get excited. Um, but yeah, so it makes you wonder, okay, so how confident are we with the, the cliffs of ice? Um, I think, well, look, I mean, it is less far-fetched. We knew that there was ice on Mars. You know, we can see it through a telescope. Uh, you know, like the ice caps and the sort of thing. So the idea is there is actually more ice on Mars and it's a cold place. Not too surprising. Also, the beginnings of this discovery date back a decade um, to the first observation of ice on the floor of fresh meteorite craters. So they've been building up these observations over many years. Um, and they saw them basically through seeing blue, like the ice looks blue um, in photographs taken by the, the orbiter. And, you know, it's the red planet. The blue is pretty obvious. It stands out quite a bit. So, yeah, they're pretty confident there is this ice there. And who knows? I mean, ice has to melt eventually. So, you know, maybe they will find liquid water eventually and it will actually um, trickle down. Right, and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love for you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can send us a message, ask us a question, get in touch. Uh, you, if you want, you can even um, telephone the station. You can phone 3CR on 03 9419 and give us a message. Or you can just uh, listen to us. Our podcast is available on all your favorite podcast services. If you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a good rating and review. Or you can just find us on the 3CR website. That's 3cr.org.au. Or you can listen to us on the radio. Once again, same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.